this is Joy Gilfillan, host of I Change Justice, where members of the Restorative Community Coalition talk civics with people who are living in the aftermath of an arrest. People confronting the compound dilemmas, ripple effects, and consequences on their family, friends, and taxpayers. Listeners' discretion is advised for this information can be disturbing and can trigger an emotional reaction. This is about lived experiences, discussed for taxpayer education, and to advance justice system reform. It is not to be used for legal advice. Hello, this is Joy with I Change Justice podcast. We're here today with a special guest, Ilona Krohn. She's from Hanover, Germany. And she does stuff in the world of business that most of us never deal with because she's traveled into multiple countries in the world. We're looking at economics and business systems and how are things working and not working. And right now, our world's in a bit of a crisis economically. We're dealing with crisis conditions in our local community with regards to economics and business. So I invited her to come today to talk to us about what it's like from an economic standpoint. Alona, would you introduce yourself and give us an idea of what your background is and what you do that most of us don't even understand? <laughs> um, yeah, my name is Ilona Krohn, and I finished high school and went to work for an insurance company. I um, completed uh, an apprenticeship there. I knew after two weeks I wouldn't do this for the rest of my life and, and kind of went from there. I moved from insurance into global reinsurance, um, studied economics, um, and then started moving around uh, to South Africa, uh, to Ireland. I lived in the UK for 12 years and, um, yeah, basically really traveled the world um, working at the same time and really always with a focus on how do people do things and a special pa uh, passion of mine is actually small and medium enterprises, owner-owned businesses, and how they or owner-run businesses and how they fare in the various economic um, situations. So, what is reinsurance? What is global business? What is that whole thing about? Like, what is this about banking and reinsurance? I never even heard the phrase until I met you. So, talk to me about that. What that means? Reinsurance is. Insuring insurance companies, it's done on an international level, on an international basis. And an example would be the property insurance. So if you've got your house insured, let's say in Florida, you would, you would have the exposure to, to storms, hurricanes, and so on. In California, you might have earthquake. And if you, if you left all that risk within the American insurance market, a really major catastrophe could wipe out parts of the, the industry. And so for over 150 years, insurers basically spread their risk, their local or national risk into the global insurance industry. So if you have a big, you know, a hurricane like Katrina was paid by reinsurance companies from all over the world, from Japan through Germany, the UK, and so on. And what really fascinated me was that it was a global business and that you actually look at the world globally. So uh, an American insurer would only look at the American situation as a reinsurer. You look at the entire world. And that was something that really fascinated me. And it really started me off 
on the travel and on this curiosity of what does it actually mean to have business at a global level? Wow. So when we talk about global economics and when we talk about money systems and we like even the prison industrial complex in our case, because we're talking about the, the justice system, we're talking about impacts locally and regionally and nationally because incarceration and prison and all of these things affect everything in the U.S., but we're one of the leading um, business enterprises in the world. I mean, we're considered the leading economy, right? Mm -hmm. And so our economic system, as it's tied to global economics and as it's tied to war and as it's tied to peace and prisons and jails, and I mean, all this stuff is mixed up. So it was really fun for me to start talking with you and understanding that you had done, like you did data research for these reinsurance companies, right? And that was part of what you did when you went uh, to these different parts of the world? I was, yeah, I was actually working for an independent company that was collecting neutral um, or unbiased information um, for the global insurance market. And I would go around and talk to regulators. I would talk to reinsurers, to um, intermediaries and insurance companies in a market and basically interview them about how things were going, what the issues were. Um, and it would be dealing from any economics to, um, you know, uh, to loss events, to regulation and so on. Um, so it, it's, all, again, that would be a global viewpoint because I would come in with an international experience of talking to, to yeah, insurance people in the broadest sense in various countries. And I would get the local view, but I could put it into the context of the bigger picture. Wow. So what we're talking about when we start talking about the jail and prison industrial complex, or we talk about taxes or how much money is going into having to build bureaucracies and non-government organizations or government organizations and independent contractors. I mean, we've been having this conversation at the Restorative Community Coalition for a few years because there's been a push to build this huge jail uh, here in Whatcom County when we only have a few hundred thousand people living here. Why did they need to build a 2,450 bed jail long term? You know, that was their, that was the scope of work that they wanted to build. And yet our research showed that if you did prevention, you didn't have to build a big jail. You could actually invest in people first. So one of the questions I have for you, that's our opinion, but the reason I'm asking you to talk with us, explain the difference in money systems like NGOs versus corporate businesses versus government bureaucracies. How are these money models work? Because they're all for-profit businesses and they're corporations. And that's what we're talking about here. Um, I mean, in the, in the end, if, you, if we take a subject like crime, for example, um, there's different ways uh, that, a, that a country or a society can deal with that. Um, mm -hmm. So in most countries, it's a government system and a, and a bureauc bureaucratic system that um, is funded by the taxpayer, but it's actually public servants who are doing the work within a very defined framework. Now, the problem when you have a bureaucracy is always that there's no, um, because the, the, within the system, the individuals, in the end, you always have to remember it's, it's the system, but there's people acting within it. And those people 
are acting rationally from their own point of view. So if you are um, an administrator or somebody within a bureaucratic system, or maybe a manager of a department, you would be allocated a budget based on the plans that you have made and you kind of submitted it. Um, and then you have the money, you start doing what you are planning to do. Um, but if you realize, I actually don't need the full budget, let's say, you know, I had budgeted $250,000, I actually only need $220,000. If you basically say, well, I've got extra money, I give it back to you and, um, you know, to save money and be more efficient, that's actually not rational within the system. Because that means for the next year, you're going to get a smaller budget allocated. And that for your career and for your power and for everything is not really in your interest. So a bureaucracy will always have a tendency to keep expanding. If you're a rational bureaucrat, you say, okay, um, I've I have $250,000 allocated. I spend it all and I had all this wonderful, these wonderful results. And if you had given me 25,000 more, I could have done this and this and this. So then with a bit of luck for the next cycle, I get $275,000 budget, more staff and more power and, and a better career. And that's really how bureaucracies works. And that's why they keep expanding. It's very, very difficult to cut a bureaucracy down because that's just the way the system works. And it's rational for everyone within the system to act that way. Mm -hmm. so, the, so the government, this is where they talk about government continues to expand. And one of, I was talking to a, a legislator, actually. She was an attorney originally, an environmental attorney. She became a legislator and then she became a judge. And one of the fascinating things she said to me when I was asking her about some of the logic behind these things, she said, when, when I was a lawmaker, my job was to make the constituents happy to pass laws that would stop people from doing things they didn't want to do. So I passed the laws. As an attorney, my job was to figure out how to break laws and how to fight with people around laws. And so I made my money with conflict in the legal system. And then as a judge, my job was to execute the laws and to punish people and to get the you know, to, to do it all. But in none of those cases, did I actually ever have to deal with balancing the budget? Yeah. My job had nothing to do with but balancing the budget because all of those jobs in her particular life path were all paid for by taxpayers. So, the, so she said, the one thing that I would tell you to do, Joy, is look at where does the money come from and where does it go to? And what is the actual productivity? What's the gain on the money spent? Because that's what matters to the taxpayers because the taxpayers have to pay for all of it. So the more you fail, it, it might expand your career or expand your job or expand your power, but it doesn't necessarily work. Well, that's the problem <laughs> that, that it's, not, it's not focused on the solution. Right, because everyone within the system is just doing their part of the job without really connecting all the dots. And because the bureaucracy in particular is so incredibly complex because it's been patched up over time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, whenever something doesn't quite work, you add, add a new patch on top of it. And so you've got this really creaking monster that, um, that costs an enormous amount of money, but doesn't really get much done. And that is why you know, some countries say, well, we privatize certain aspects of our 
bureaucracy in order to get more efficiency into the system. And then how does that privatization cause problems? Because I've we've been diagramming that and I did a whole PowerPoint on, you know, no bigger jails and invest in people first because the privatization, that means there's no oversight and the privatization looks good on the surface to the corporation, the county corporation that's running the system, but the privatization, the money actually gets, the costs actually get paid back and more profits come up from the person who gets entered into the jail and justice system they end up paying more money and there's no oversight. So how does that work from a global standpoint? What is the system? What are the drivers that cause the privatization to work or not work? Yeah, the the problem there is that the the idea behind it is that if you create competition and you, you know, you kind of um, get, yeah, get various companies to compete for the contracts that somehow you get the best deal because you get the cheapest one and so on and so on. And there's so many examples from all over the world where that so backfired because other people hand in proposals that are so cheap that they can't deliver on what they promised. Um, Or the other side, which in a way is, is more dangerous is that those companies, when you're dealing with corporates um, really only have one job and one purpose, and that's to maximize profits. And what may not be obvious is how a company that is is involved in in the prison system is maximizing profits is to lock up as many people as possible. Because if you're being paid for each person who's being incarcerated and processed through your facility, then there is not exactly, not necessarily in bad faith, but it's just good business to say, okay, then we need to create a, an environment and a structure where we have as many people as possible processed through the system because that maximizes the profits for the corporation. But again, when you look at the societal effect, it's actually creating more crime in a way rather than um, solving what you wanted to to solve. So it's actually, you know, I came up with this phrase when I started to do investing in the stock options trading when the, when we could commercialize it, we started doing it all online. I started looking at it and I found the phrase contrarian investing. And it was almost like we're investing money in systems that are going to fail on purpose because the failure of the system promotes the growth of the of that particular economy. So the privatization of the prison industrial complex actually expanded the jail industry, which is the feeder system into the prison system. So it's contrary to logic for the person who's paying the taxes into the system or the people who are having to pay the bills that are generated within the system. But if you look at it from the outside as a corporate business, it's a good business. It's grown like crazy. Exactly. Yeah. But the problem is that the people who are making all the money are not solving the problem. And in a way, because you're dealing with something like crime that needs to be solved, you can just keep putting up the taxes in order to pay for it. So you're in a similar trap as in a bureaucracy where basically the budget keeps expanding and you just raise taxes in order to meet the budgets. Now you raise taxes in order to deal with the additional crime that is being created because the system is making money on people being, um, you know, uh, yeah, penalized or sent off to prison. 
So let me ask you a question. It's been odd for me to watch what's been happening. Our, our public people, the last few years, quite a few years, we've been voting against a jail tax because what we wanted was we wanted people to invest in our community first. And we, the county was willing to look at doing prevention services. Interestingly enough, the COVID crisis came along and we had lockdowns and we had national things that happened that put people under a lot more duress and stress. And with the emergency management system, we're talking about risk, we're talking about fear, we're talking about two years of lockdowns and the cost of incarceration went up, right? So two years into the system, the emergency preparedness people are in charge of everything. There hasn't been oversight. And our sheriff is claiming now that we have this 600% growth in property crime. Well, that to me is logical when you restrict people and create more trauma. So how does that, how do we get out of a crisis like that? Is that something you would be willing to talk about? I mean, the, I think any crisis, um, especially something like this can can only be solved in the in the community you know you can't find a one fits all kind of uh, system that actually solves it all miraculously and um and what i've noticed really in the in the when i was talking to businesses and to successful businesses is that whenever you are cooperative within the community everybody gets much better results so talk to me about that case that you had where you were working with somebody who was tri- thriving during a financial crisis that had to do with the prison industrial complex. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was uh, in 2009. And I was working as the economic advisor to the Chamber of Commerce in Manchester at the time. And that's the biggest chamber of commerce in the UK. Um, and the focus really uh, for me was on small and medium enterprises that were owner run. And I wanted to, um, to find out how the banking crisis affected their business and how they were just faring in the, in the recession because it was a severe downturn that was very steep and very quickly. And I got contacted by a, a business owner who had an IT services business. Um, because he couldn't get uh, funding from the bank. He had, um, he had a, a quarterly growth of about 30%. So every three months, he had more orders coming in. And, um, and he, couldn't, he needed basically extra money just to fund that growth. And he went to a bank and they said, no, sorry, we can't do it. And uh, that was a subject that I was um, researching. And so I went to see him um, one, to talk about the banks, but also to, to talk about how he managed to thrive when so many other businesses in the same sector were really, really struggling. Mm-hmm. And that is always something that fascinates me. And so I just, you know, so I, we spent a couple of hours just talking about how he ran his business. And, and I asked him, why are you doing well when everyone is doing badly? And he didn't have a clue. So we went through it bit by bit and it was stuff like, um, you know, no job is too small and we, we take everything on and we get a lot of repeat business. If we have too much on, then we have other companies that we're working with and we are basically handing our clients over to them. So it was a very cooperative approach to business and really put the human being, the solution 
and the customer into the forefront. And that was all fine, but I just felt, okay, there's something missing. And so at some point, we came to talk about his staff. And that was when his eyes were really lighting up because there, there was just something sparking where you could see now the real passion is there. <laughs> and, um, and he started talking about how he got his people. And it turned out that he was really felt called to give people who had been in prison a, a way back into society because he had had a really difficult time when he was a young man and he could easily have ended up in the prison system. And he just felt he was so blessed and so lucky that he didn't, that he felt he, he, he wanted to help people who had less luck. And so the way he worked was he worked with a local prison and he went in there um, to talk to, to the inmates and see whether there were people who had any talent with regards to this IT stuff. And about six months before they were released, he started training them up and then they would come and work for him. And, um, and what he said, uh, what came through was that those people were so grateful and so they weren't used to somebody recognizing their potential, let alone go out of their way to help them. So he would get them housing and so on. You know, it was like an entire support system that they moved into. And those people went through fire for him. So if there needed to be any extra work done, if there was, you know, kind of um, extra hours to be working, weekend work or whatever, his people would be there and in, in, in full passion. So what's exciting, what I'm hearing you say is that, number one, because he was focused on the people and actually solving problems for people, he was able to maintain a, a quality of control during a downtime in the market. Secondly, because he was working with people who had a reason to work and it mattered that they work and he was willing to bring them from a, a difficult situation, like they were coming out of prison, they didn't have any prospects, but he looked for people who had an aptitude and then he trained them. So he invested in them and they became some of his star employees and that then rippled out so that he treated his customers better everything was an improved situation. So he ended up becoming a thriving business during this period yes. of time where it easily could have been a downturn. Yeah. I mean, it was just that there was so much positive, supportive energy within the business that obviously the customer feels as well. Uh -huh. You know, when you, when you call somebody in and, the, and you just, you get a sense that there's really something special about it and they're there with passion and they're there when you need them um, and they go the extra mile. That is something that you value, especially in a situation that's under strain, as we have now, you know, there's so much negativity, there's so many problems, there's so many things that don't work. There's change that we can't even fathom that's coming and we're in the middle of. And if you come across people in your daily life who, who really exude that positive energy where you mm -hmm. feel they are here to help me and they are genuine, then that is something that I will go back to and I will call them rather than the competitor next door who might be 10% cheaper. But, you know, it's not giving me the same kind of um, satisfaction and the same kind of, um, yeah, I think it, it, it has to do with a sense of community and a sense of let's support each other in a crisis and that feels good. And interestingly enough, one of the things that we have been working on is the idea of working with Homes Now and Serenity Outreach Services and some of the other nonprofits in town that have really been hurt hard 
by the COVID crisis and their clients have been hurt hard. And yet they're not the people, the individual people that are their clients or these nonprofits have gotten funding from the federal government because a lot of the federal government that has been brought into Whatcom County, it's like somewhere around maybe a hundred million extra dollars is coming in here from the, the federal windfalls from the COVID crisis, for example. And a lot of that money is going into large corporate nonprofits. It isn't going down into the streets, but what uh, Holmes Now was talking with me about is that they've been working with the people in the streets and they work with those people to teach them how to do their own leadership development, how to do their own work within their nonprofit. And they cut costs enormously because they're investing in the people who are the clients who are coming in, similar to what your prison fellow was doing. He was investing in people who wanted to do something different and it helped his corporation thrive. And this is the kind of thing we can do if we cooperate in local communities. I mean, yeah, the thing is that, that every human being has potential and every human being has potential to contribute money to the, to the community. So if you are living, uh, if you're in a, in a tax financed system, the more taxpayers you have and the more your people thrive, the less taxes you have per head because, you know, everybody is doing well and you can, you know, you need lower individual taxes in order to fund whatever you, you want to fund. Because it's the, the goal in what you're talking about is making sure that individual free enterprise, individual companies or small groups or cooperatives are thriving because the more of those that are thriving, ultimately the more revenue comes in. And so you're actually not just gaining on reduced costs, you're gaining on increased revenue from taxpayers and groups that are actually making a living. Did I say that well? Yes. Yeah. Actually, the um, what I'm seeing a lot um, at the moment is that Basically, it's a lose-lose, especially when you look at the U.S. There's so much. It's, it's actually a global phenomenon. But I think because there's no social security system that buffers the effect, the U.S. just sees it so much more drastically than, than Europe at the moment. But if you have a system where the middle classes keep dropping because jobs disappear or because, I don't know, investment income disappears, you know, somebody had a had a savings account or, or um, an investment account that lost all the money. And all of a sudden you've got basically people who have been doing well and supporting the system, just dropping out. Mm -hmm. And the problem is that if the system allows that to happen, it kind of destroys its own base. It, it destroys itself because the, those systems exist because there's people who pay for them. So it's actually in the interest of the business community, it's in the interest of the, the city council, and it's the interest of the, the bureaucracy to have people doing well. So in other words, one of the problems that we have in America right now is the middle class has been really, really decimated. We got decimated in different kinds of investments. We've gotten decimated with the COVID crisis. People were shut down. Small businesses were shut down. So we actually don't have a strong taxpayer base to start with. And yet the cost of bureaucracy has been escalating. The costs of taxes, they keep raising taxes on us as if there's no limit to taxes. And yet if you don't have taxpayers who can afford to pay the taxes, it becomes a self-implosive system. 
Yes. Yeah. So it actually eats itself up, which is part of the problem that we have. And the more distress we have, the more rise in crime there is, the more danger there is. It, it becomes catabolic. Is that the phrase? Or entropic? Whatever. It's, it's like destroying itself. Yes. It's, it's basically self-destructive. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that is the irony of it, that it's actually not rational for the system to allow large portions of, um, of the community to fall out of the system. So it's important that we figure out how to bring the homeless and the people who have been criminalized, because we've got tens of millions of people in America that have been criminalized and unable to go to work, and they can't get housing, and they can't get, it's like we've broken the system, and we have a larger number of people falling out of the taxpayer base. I mean, they're just not able to function, so they become a liability to the system. Yeah, especially once they they come into the prison system mm-hmm. because they you know they used to be taxpayers who contributed then they dropped out of that and maybe just you know were living on the streets or something once they're criminalized they become a cost to the system but they are a cost that some companies and some businesses make money out of and that's where it gets so tricky because um you will have a a few people who thrive on the fact that there's high crime and you will have the society and the community that loses and it loses to a point where it might not be able to come back because once you undermine your taxpayer space too much, it's really, really difficult to reinvigorate that. So being able to think about for Whatcom County specifically over the next little bit is one of the things we really need to be thinking about is how our community can start teaming up in community to help each other, to put people back to work, to help each other develop skill sets, leadership skill sets, free enterprise skill sets, collaboration, cooperative organizations, so that we can actually start revitalizing our core. Yes. Instead of, instead of incarcerating them or instead of putting them into mental conditions or, or, pushing them out of the system and saying, well, you just don't belong here. You can't do that very long. You actually have to start reinvesting in humans. Yeah. I mean, you can either write them off, then they're, they're out and they're gone forever. Or you can kind of let them run through the system and then try and fix it afterwards, which will be much, much more expensive than actually preventing them from entering the system in the first place. So they're really the rational and the the most efficient way and the most cost-effective way to do it is really to recognize that in each person who's struggling is a potential that they could actually do well. So when the, in the reinsurance industry, when you are working with a company and a major catastrophe hits, let's say it's a, you know, a hurricane or something like that, in this case, it was a civic trauma with COVID, there was health trauma, there was civic trauma, we had shutdowns across the thing, across the marketplace. What are the smartest things that you've learned from the world that you're in that you would be doing if you were a a politician, for example, in the community? What would you be looking for that would help the economy rebuild itself? I think the first thing you need is a vision. You really need to know where you want to go. What do you want your community to be like? And really get into that, kind of get excited about it, get inspired about it. Also find out 
what is your community good at? What is unique about it? Where is its edge? Mm -hmm. and, um, and make sure that you include the people in there because they are the heart of the whole thing. And then once you have that, then you find people who buy into that and say, yes, that's actually something I want to get into and I want to support. And, um, and from there, then you, you kind of get a positive avalanche rather than a negative one. And, you, and, um, and the thing is, because you're now working together, um, you don't really have this, the, the devastating fallout that we had in COVID because everybody was kind of alone at home and they were just left there and they could go into all their bad thoughts and into all their fears and into all that stuff. If you're positively engaged in building something that's inspiring you, then that is really mentally healthy. And, it, um, and the fact that people come together um, make you so much more effective as well. So you, the, the key for me is really to find the right people for the right roles who are naturally um, adept at, at filling them and then basically supporting them to work together, um, get the funding to get it done and then bring everybody back so that everyone can do, can, can contribute to the community, to society. And that way um, you need less and less government basically government bureaucracy in order to fix the, the people who don't, who don't work out within the system because they're actually looked after by the community. So the community helps itself. Yes. Sort of like our old Grange Halls used to work and our old 4-H clubs. And when I grew up in Eastern Washington, you know, there was a lot of community support for community people who were trying to get something done. And we actually helped each other and we did fundraisers and we held events and gatherings and we did leadership development, but it was more of a grassroots level. Yeah. So you were talking to me about Africa and some of your experiences of, of working with different groups in Africa and how that has informed you to see the world a little bit differently. Can you speak to that at all? Um, I mean, Africa is, uh, Africa is an incredibly complex, complex thing. It's, it's, always written off as this problem, the problem continent. But the thing is actually, it's a problem that's created by the international economic community because there are too many interests, business interests and money interests who don't want it to work. Ah. Because um, if you're looking at the, the traditional, you know, kind of um, uh, NGO sector that goes into, I don't know, build wells or something like that, whatever project you have, um, again, you need to kind of look at the individuals who work within that system. They might be idealists and they might come in with really great ideas of saying, okay, I want to make a difference in Africa. But in the end, it's their job that is created by the fact that there's a problem. So the, so the uh, self-fulfilling prophecy almost is that no matter how hard you work to solve the problem, it's actually... Um, not, an not in the interest of the overall system for this to work because there's so much money to be made out of prob uh, Africa being a problem. And the other issue is um, that the, the, the Western systems and the Western economy and the Western regulation that is being forced into Africa is completely disconnected from the African culture. So the systems, Africa is a, a community-based culture and they do really well within the community supporting each other. They have 
something called the Stockfelds, where everyone adds a little money every month into a pot. And then from time to time, that gets redistributed for, to people to actually buy things or, you know, there are different uh, types of it. Hmm. Um, and that is like their original banking system that is basically funded by the community and it's, it's, it's shared back out into the community and nobody is making any money out of it. So it's actually an authentic collaboration. Yes. So people are investing money back into the community for redistribution back into the community. Yes. And it's not about a for-profit system. It's not about private interests. It's community interests and community helping community. Yes. It's people helping people. And the fact that I know I'm being helped um, if I'm in trouble, that is what the original insurance industry is like about, you know, when you look at the origins of how insurance works. I don't actually know anything about um, what were the origins of so, that. So um, the insurance industry goes back about 300 years when there were big fires in the cities. There was the one in London, there was one in Hamburg that burned half the city down. And it was just so expensive to rebuild because there was no, no pot of money that it could be rebuilt out of. And so so um, people decided we're going to, um, because any house can burn down at any time, and you always have the problem of the rebuilding costs. So if you take 10,000 people and they all contribute a little bit, but only five in a thousand houses burn down, I will have a pot of money that I can use in order to rebuild the, the houses. So that is... Um, that is the original idea. So again, it's, a, it's an artificial community, but it's a community that knows I'm exposed to the same risk and I share the risk and everyone just needs to contribute a little bit. And if something goes wrong, there's someone there to sort it out. And that's the original insurance idea. Um, and that actually is really still applicable in, in our current world. But the funny thing is, when I talk to insurance people, hardly anyone knows that. You know what's funny? I was sitting there thinking about taxes one day and I went, you know what? Nobody wants to pay taxes. So why do we have taxes in the first place? And I went back to, well, why did we originally start to pay taxes? And why did we put taxes, tax money into a 911 system? Why did we put taxes into building a government? I mean, you know what it was? It was shared costs. It was shared risk. Mm. we were willing when we were productive, we wanted, I mean, I remember I never was opposed to taxes. I'm opposed to excess taxes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, taxes because, are not the issue. It's what you do with it. That's right. And, and, and basically the size of them, yeah. you know, and what you get out of it in the end, you know, if I pay taxes and I get a brand new road, that's kind of useful. I can yeah. see that. Yeah. And if I'm paying taxes and I'm getting a first class emergency services and they show up and they help my family not die from an accident, I want to pay taxes for that. But if what I'm doing is I'm paying taxes for bureaucracy to get bigger, bigger, bigger and bigger and for the solutions not to come, then I, don't, I can't afford to continue to pay taxes. And, and one of the problems that we built in America is we've built such high tax systems and we built systems of how to money manage the money and how to protect ourselves from managing the money and how to 
you know, it's like the liabilities have just gotten worse and worse and worse. And we keep racking up more laws and rules and regulations to manage how to manage the tax money, as opposed to how do we actually solve the problem of social injustice? How do we actually solve the problem of people that get hurt because of an economic downturn? How do we actually solve the problem of an accident that you didn't intend to cause, but it actually devastated somebody else's life? And so getting help, we need a certain amount of taxes. It's just that we've had so much increase in taxes, and then we have increase in bureaucracy, and then we have increase in the need to cover your liabilities in case you've screwed up, and it just becomes this snowball effect. Yeah. So I think that one of the major things that we want to talk about here was, so if you were to look at, we've got corporations that are for profit, we've got NGOs that are for profit, we've got government bureaucracies that are for profit. How do we find a model that pulls us out of that pattern? What is the, what is the solution economically to not continuing what we've been doing? and to move another direction? I believe the way um, forward is to, um, I, I said, I'm a fan, and I've said this a number of times, of the small and medium-sized enterprise, because mm-hmm. the owner and the way the owner thinks and the way the passions of the owner and everything around the business is actually directly linked to the person who, who runs it. Mm-hmm. And so um, for me, the way is for passionate people to start projects and you can call them businesses. You know, it's always a bit tricky when you go because people have a certain idea what a business is, but in the end, it is about getting people together with a vision of change, getting the right people on board and then getting the community to see the value in it and basically chip in to make it happen rather than um, kind of, delegating the whole thing to a to a bureaucratic system or a corporate Mm -hmm. so a corporate will want to make money a bureaucratic system will just want to have power and um you know and kind of a safe job Um, but neither of those are really focused on getting the problem solved that's not their fault that's the way the system is set up and the people within the system just act according to the rules so it's kind of, it, it can't work in the way it used to work. And the solution is passionate individuals getting together, really talking about what do we want? How do we want to live? And how do we want to thrive? And how do we want our people to feel and act and, and be around? And then for the community to, um, yeah, to come together and as said, everybody contributes something and that way, the right people are in the right jobs with the right passion and the right visions, and everybody wins. That's what I'm so excited so, about. So about helping people to build cooperatives and local living economies. I mean, that's yes. the Business Alliance for Local Living Economies was founded here out of Bellingham area. And one of the things that we were talking about was free enterprise, small businesses, helping small businesses invest locally, resource locally, build locally, be responsible locally. And that can, in fact, is the kinds of things that we can do with our food banks, with our sustainable farms, with our our small um, free enterprise retraining. It's like almost going back to the old job course, but doing it from a local standpoint and helping people to rebuild. And I think that helping our 
homeless and helping our people who are criminalized. There's no way out within the system that we have it. No, And so they become a liability to the system and then they become sad and angry and hurt. And that contributes to more and more accelerating trauma. So in order to pull out of this last couple of years, we have to turn it around and start looking at it differently. Yeah, it needs a completely new approach because this is unfixable. And you're at a point where there's a lose-lose model that mm-hmm. really can get only get worse. And it's actually quite easy to turn it around into a win-win model where nobody loses and everybody wins. And the community really starts to thrive in a way that it possibly never has before. So I'm looking forward to having another conversation with you, Alona. Um, I welcome you to be part of our conversation in Whatcom County and potentially even across the nation. How do we reinvest in local communities everywhere and help us start to rebuild our system? And with that, thank you. Is there anything else you want to say to close out or are we pretty complete? I think we covered quite a, quite a good ground. <laughs> and I'm, I'm really excited to be able to continue this because I'm, as you can feel, it's, I'm very passionate about it. And I, I'm absolutely convinced that it's the right way to go. Awesome. Thank you so much, Alana. Thank you very much, listeners. Please check out the restorativecommunity.org and look at what we're doing. We will be back. Thank you so much. Bye. Thank you all for listening. Please share our podcast with your friends and family. Subscribe at Spotify, iTunes, or from your favorite playlists. At therestorativecommunity.org, you're invited to subscribe to our newsletter, connect through social media, or send us feedback on our shows. If you're inclined to help, you can volunteer, donate, learn more, and connect at info at therestorativecommunity.org. Contributing helps us empower those silenced by oppression so they can emerge into their higher potential. Thank you. Today's podcast is being brought to you by the Restorative Community Coalition, a nonprofit organization committed to serving the voiceless, especially those silenced by civic trauma. We received contributions from the community to fund research, education, direct services, mentoring, case interception, court navigation, restorative justice, and more. Beyond our operating costs, our long-term capital goal is to build the Restore a Life Center, a hub for housing, employment, education, life skills recovery, including a farm for sustainable living. It is designed to help our community reduce civic trauma, mitigate conflict, promote rehabilitation, and encourage regenerative local living economic development. Please donate at therestorativecommunity.org.